Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ezekiel, the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Thank you, Brian, for praying for us and for praying for the General Assembly in particular. I just wanted to make a few notes about that. As Brian said, it is in Dallas this week. The actual business of the Assembly will take place Wednesday through Friday. Um, uh, This is the time when we as a denomination um, deal with the business of the church. We deal with what are called overtures. Those are requests that come up from the presbyteries in our denomination requesting that the General Assembly act. And so this is a place where sometimes significant changes can be made, possibly. So it's a very important meeting. And so, again, as Brian said, we covet your prayers for that. If you want to be better informed about what's going on at General Assembly this week, you can go to byfaithonline.com. It's one big word, byfaithonline.com. You can also stream the General Assembly uh, live. I'm not really sure what the link is, but I think if you just do a search, PCA General Assembly live stream, it'll come up. If you're interested in that kind of thing, you can watch it. Uh, But there are a a lot of issues before the General Assembly this year. Many issues actually related to uh, sexuality and some issues related to sexual abuse. So uh, some more controversial things going on this year. But I would encourage you to inform yourself and um, pray and pay attention to what is happening. And if you have any questions for me or exhortations or counsel for me and for Eric Mowry as elders who will represent this congregation at General Assembly, uh, please contact us. Um, We would love to hear from you. So that's this week, General Assembly. We're in the book of Ezekiel today. As we continue through the Bible, one sermon per Bible book, we're continuing uh, through this sermon series called Route 66. We'll be looking at chapter 37 this morning, Ezekiel 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a white paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, and this is on page 422, 422. Um, One of my favorite fiction writers is a woman named Flannery O'Connor. Uh, died in the 1960s, I think, and Flannery O'Connor was a Christian and wrote stories from a Christian point of view, and um, she wrote a lot of stories that were kind of strange, actually. I mean, they were kind of grotesque, even, in some ways, and she was asked about that. I mean, why do you write these stories that are so bizarre? And her answer was this. She said, when your audience that is the people that she's writing for, holds beliefs different than your own, what you have to do is make your vision apparent by shock. So she was aware that a lot of people reading her stories were not Christians, and she wanted to get their attention. So she said, I have to make my vision apparent by shock. And she said this, to the hard of hearing you shout, and to the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. In other words, this is how you get people's attention. You draw large and startling figures. You kind of grab their attention by shocking them with certain images and stories. Well, as we approach here the book 
of Ezekiel, we're going to find that that is a similar kind of strategy that God is using through Ezekiel. We are here in the major prophets portion of Route 66. We've looked at Isaiah and Jeremiah, and now Ezekiel, one of the major prophets. We'll move on to the minor prophets after that. Um, but very often with the prophets, the word of God would, would come to the prophet, and the prophet would speak those words then to God's people. But on some occasions, God would reveal what he wanted to say through the prophet through a, a vision or a dream of some sort. And that's how God revealed his word to Ezekiel. And sometimes they came to Ezekiel in kind of large and startling figures. You know, for instance, at the very beginning of Ezekiel, he beholds beholds this vision of a creature with four faces. Uh, lion, ox, bear, I think maybe, and a human being. And this creature has calves' feet. And there's another occasion where God gives Ezekiel something to eat. You'd expect it to be food. No, it's a scroll. And Ezekiel has to eat the scroll. And so he eats the scroll and says it tastes like honey. Just strange. I mean... You know the way it is when you dream and you have these kind of bizarre, strange dreams? I used to keep a dream journal, actually, and would record my dreams, and it's quite entertaining to go back and read some of these dreams. They're, they're bizarre. They don't seem to really make any sense, except that God gave Ezekiel these dreams and visions with a very specific purpose in mind. And there's a vision that came to Ezekiel in chapter 37 that is equally kind of bizarre. A valley of dry bones, a valley full of the bones left over from dead corpses. That's what we're about to read about here in Ezekiel 37. And again, the purpose here is to wake you up a little bit, to get your attention, to grab hold of your collar and say, listen, pay attention to what God has to say to you. And in this case, what God wants to do is speak to you words of hope, words of encouragement, words of blessing, particularly for any of you here today who might feel like hope is all but gone in your life. You feel like God has overlooked you, like God has forgotten you, like God has abandoned you, like you have made such a mess of your life that there is no hope for you. God says, look at this large and startling figure. I want your attention because I want to assure you that there is hope if you'll look to me. So, Background information on Ezekiel, uh, the book written by this man named Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel was uh, a priest, a Jewish man, received his vision starting at about the age of 30. Date written probably between 593 and 571 B.C. So Ezekiel writing a little bit after Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah and Jeremiah wrote before the exile. Remember the exile? That's when God's people were taken out of the land and taken to Assyria and Babylon. Some prophets are called pre-exilic. It means they wrote before the exile. Ezekiel wrote during the exile. You can see that very easily. Chapter 1, verse 1, Ezekiel says, I was among the exiles. So Ezekiel is in Babylon with God's people when he gets these visions and speaks them to God's people. Um, themes, God's sovereignty, God's holiness. We see a lot of pronouncements of judgment, as we often do in the prophets, and hope for the future. And significant events that you might be familiar with, these visions 
that I'm talking about judgment on the nations, the restored temple at the very end of the book of Ezekiel, and this story of the valley of dry bones. Uh, sometimes people see Ezekiel as kind of an obscure book. It might not be one you've looked at very recently and maybe not at all, but it is alluded to in the New Testament about 60 times, 60 times. So it shows up quite frequently in the New Testament, most of those in the book of Revelation, where, of course, we have uh, another series of kind of strange visions. So let's read this passage. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Please stand if you're able. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. Reading here from the English Standard Version of God's Holy Word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied. As I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. God, again, we ask for your blessings now upon the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, what could possibly be the reason and the purpose, the meaning of such a kind of strange vision as this, a pile of dry bones coming to life and walking like a great army? There's three things here that I think the Lord is seeking to communicate, and one of them is this, the problem. The, the, the main problem that we have to deal with is pictured for us here. We see the beginning of the vision, verse 1, the Spirit takes Ezekiel and leads him into this valley, and in the valley are these bones. And as we just simply try to picture this, it seems like 
something like you'd see in a horror film, maybe, or something in uh, Walking Dead. A lot of bones and horror and violence in The Walking Dead. This is the kind of picture here. It's a, it's a creepy, strange, kind of chilling picture. It reminds me a little bit of what it must be like to be in Death Valley in California. Uh, I understand Death Valley is one of the hottest places on the earth, extremely dry. But, you know, in Death Valley, even as hot and dry as it is, there are plants that live there and there are animals that live there. I mean, things can live in Death Valley, but this valley in Ezekiel 37 apparently is a place where nothing lives. It's just a pile of bones. It's a massive graveyard. <laughs> and these bones are supposed to picture for us and symbolize for us this idea of death. If you look to verse 2, it says, he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So these are bones that have been sitting there for a long, long time. Um, obviously a picture of a, an army that had been killed, and so decomposition has set in. All the flesh has deteriorated, and these bones have been there for a very long time. And so what we have here is a picture of Judah's condition, a picture of the um, moral, spiritual, emotional condition of God's people. And the reason I know that is because if you skip down to verse 11, God says this very clearly. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That's what these bones represent. That's what the verse is saying. These bones picture what Israel is feeling like. And the reason that Israel is feeling this way is because of the exile. Now remember we learned about that last week as in Jeremiah 52. Remember how the oh, Babylonians came into to Jerusalem and they destroyed the city and they tore down the walls and they burned down the temple and they took away about 10,000 of God's people and exiled them to Babylon. I mean, I guess it would be something like if ISIS fighters came into our nation and conquered Washington, D.C. and took a bunch of Americans out of our country and exiled them to live in Iraq or Iran or someplace like that. That's the picture of what has happened here. And God's people are completely demoralized. If you go on to the rest of verse 11, behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are completely cut off. And so this is what God's people are thinking to themselves. We have disobeyed God. We have not followed his ways. And God is finally finished with us. He has no more patience with us. He's done with us. It's over. The whole redemptive project is over. All of God's promises to us as his people, all the hopes and aspirations we had, they're finished. They're done. And they're discouraged. They're hopeless because of the deadness that is being pictured here in Ezekiel 37. Now you might recall that I have said to you before in this sermon series that sometimes the Old Testament is a little easier to understand than the New Testament. You might be surprised to hear me say that. Old Testament easier than the New Testament in some respects because the Old Testament gives us pictures that illustrate theological realities that are described for us in the New Testament. And this is an example. And the reality that is being pictured here is the spiritual deadness of all humanity apart from Christ. That's what this picture is showing us. And that's 
the problem that we all face. I mean, the New Testament says this in several places. Ephesians chapter 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Romans 3, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Another picture of, of death. Do you see what the scriptures are communicating to us about the human condition apart from Christ? We're not just merely sick. Uh, we're not uh, people who are in a condition to... Um, renovate ourselves. We're, we're not in a place where we can save ourselves. If we can just get society together and pass the right legislation and make sure that everybody has enough money and enough schooling and, you know, we can do it. If we just kind of get together and get along and unified humanity together, we're going to make things all right. What the scripture says is, no, that's impossible apart from a renewal of the human heart because we are spiritually Dead. I wonder what you would say if you asked, somebody asked you, what, what is humanity's greatest need? What is the greatest need of our country right now, the United States? What do we need more than anything? What does the world need more than anything? What is our biggest problem? What's the most crucial need we face? Is it addressing the um, climate change issue? I mean, is that the biggest need? Is it a new president? Is that what we really need more than anything? Is it, is it gun control? Is it immigration? Is it, is it poverty? Is it the opioid epidemic? What is it that we need the most? Those things are all issues that are legitimate and need to be discussed and need to be addressed. But there's nothing more important than addressing the issue of the spiritual deadness of people apart from Christ. We are not good people by nature. That's what the scriptures are teaching us. We have hearts that are bent against him. We have hearts that have no desire to please him in the way that God calls us to. As an illustration of this, imagine um, parents speaking to their child and, and the child wants to go to the movies later uh, that night and the parent says, well, you can go to the movies but only if you clean your room. Well, the child doesn't want to clean his room. And he's angry about having to clean his room. So he goes into his room and he cleans it, but he's cleaning it, grumbling, he's angry, he's got this attitude, and he's doing what he's supposed to do, right? His parents asked him to clean his room, but he's doing it with this angry, defiant attitude to his parents. C can we say in that case that he's doing a good thing? I mean, outwardly, yes. Outwardly, yes. Inwardly, no. And that's the problem with all humanity. Inwardly, we're not born with this inclination to do things to glorify God because of our spiritual deadness, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's what Ezekiel 7 is picturing here for us. What we need is not external reformation, we need internal transformation. That's only something that can happen by a movement of the Spirit of God. It's the only way it'll happen. Which is why we should plead with God to do that. That should be our hope for God to do that. It's the only hope our nation and our world has. That's the problem. But what is the 
prescription. In other words, how is this problem going to be treated? So we see this starting in verse 3. God speaks to Ezekiel and asks him, Son of man, can these bones live? They're standing there before the pile of bones, and this question is asked. Do you think these bones can live, Ezekiel? <laughs> kind of a crazy question. I mean, an irreverent person might say, well, what, you know, duh. I mean, no, these are bones. Bones don't rise up and, and live. And so how does Ezekiel respond to this? Of course, he doesn't want to be irreverent. Um, he knows that God can do anything, but he seems, you know, perhaps reluctant to actually say yes. He doesn't know exactly what's going to, what God's going to do. And so his answer is, oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> Verse 3. Uh, I'm not saying you're going to, and I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying you know what you're going to do. I mean, Ezekiel was a faithful man. He probably believed God could do it, but he wasn't sure exactly what God was going to do. Oh, Lord God, you know. Well, we know that nothing is impossible for God and that he has a plan for how he's going to deal with this. But how is he going to do it? What is the prescription that God gives to Ezekiel? How are these bones going to live? What should be done? I mean, certainly something remarkable would be required to get a bunch of bones to come together and live. I mean, certainly that takes a miraculous act of some sort that, that Ezekiel needs to do something extraordinary. I mean, certainly there needs to be fire from heaven or a lightning strike or something like that has got to happen in order to bring these bones alive. But what is it that God tells Ezekiel to do? Nothing extraordinary. Nothing remarkable. He says, preach a sermon. <laughs> preach a sermon. Verse 4, look. Prophesy over these bones, Ezekiel. Say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's what Ezekiel was supposed to do. To speak God's word to the bones. Now, I imagine Ezekiel, maybe in his mind, was thinking, I, you know, I'm not sure this is going to work, God. But Ezekiel is a faithful, obedient guy, and so that's what he does. does. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. God told me to do it, so I did it. And just what God described, or what God said would happen in verses 5 and 6, they do happen. And we see that in verses 7 and eight, as he prophesies, first of all, he hears this sound. It's a, it's a rattling. The bones are starting to shake. They're starting to move. And they're starting to come together. And then verse 8 says, sinews appear on them. And flesh starts to come on them. And uh, skin covers them up. I would love to see what Hollywood could do with special effects to picture this. It would be such a thing to behold on the screen. And that's what happens, and so flesh comes, and these people begin to be formed with these bones, but then it says uh, in verse um, <clears throat> 8 that although the skin and the sinews have come upon these bones, there was no breath in them. So they were kind of being put together, but they weren't alive. So they needed something more, and so God offers this uh, additional command, then God said to me, verse 9, prophesy to the breath, that is speak not just to the bones, but to the spiritual nature of this thing. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come, 
from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slains that they may live. Now, this word for breath is important because in Hebrew, the same word for breath is the word that is for spirit. The Hebrew word for spirit and breath are the same word. And so what we're to see here is that this is not just breath that is being spoken here, but it is the spirit of God that is being spoken to these bones in order to give them life. There's a very similar verse back in Genesis 2, chapter uh, uh, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, when God created Adam and Eve. And it says in that verse about Adam that God breathed into him the breath of life. And now what God is doing is, you know, that was creation, God creating Adam, and now we're seeing a recreation by a new breath and a new spirit being breathed in to these bones that are covered now with sinews, flesh, and skin. And so what we have here, again, it's another picture of a New Testament reality, of a theological reality. It's a picture of regeneration, of being born again by God's Spirit. Remember Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Nicodemus, a leading Jew, religious guy, did everything right, and Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. I don't care how faithful you've been to all your Jewish rites and, 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 and rituals, but you've got to be born again. You have to have this transformation of your heart in order to see the kingdom of God and to be one of my people. This is a picture of that. The Spirit comes and breathes in life. This is the first thing that needs to happen to anybody who is saved. We don't believe so that God will breathe into us spiritual life. God breathes into us spiritual life, and therefore we believe. It's all dependent on the movement of the Spirit of God, and we see uh, how this primarily happens. The Spirit is given through the means of the Word proclaimed. And we see this in various places in the New Testament. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth, that's a new birth, regeneration, through the Word of Truth. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Well, through what means? Through the living and enduring Word of God. Do you see what's being pictured here? People are spiritually dead. There's no hope for them unless the Spirit of God works and gives them a new heart. And the way the Spirit of God works is primarily through the proclamation of the Word of God. That's the way it happens. Our catechism says it like this. How is the Word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. This is the primary means that God uses to bring people to faith and to build all of you up in holiness and comfort. The preaching of God's word. I just think that probably sounds kind of strange to a, a lot of ears these days because we're always looking for something new. We're always looking for something novel. We're always looking for something innovative. We're always being told the church needs to change. We need to adjust to the times or the church is going to die if we don't do this, if we don't do that, if we don't 
get behind this cause, if our worship services don't look like this, if we don't have this kind of music, if we don't have these kinds of special effects, there's always something else that we've got to do to keep the church afloat. And yet we look to the scriptures and we see that what God wants are things that are very simple and very ordinary. People coming to worship on Sunday and somebody standing up and preaching to them. And that's how you're built up. And that's how people are saved. There's a guy named Fred Zaspel. He says this, God does save through preaching. We need not doubt that he can and will. And we need not invent new means to help him do what he does so well by himself. We are obliged to trust him to work via the means he has promised to bless. And that's the prescription that we see here. God commands Ezekiel, preach to these bones. They come alive. God uses it by his spirit and brings them to life. That's the prescription. The last thing we have is the promise. The promise. Because all that we're reading here is actually a fulfillment of what is promised in chapter 36, verse 26. If you want to turn back just a few verses... The promise is this, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So this is a promise of the coming new covenant when people would be given new hearts by the promise or by the, the, the giving of God's Holy Spirit. Now, when we see these prophecies come from the Old Testament prophets, I mentioned this also several weeks ago, that very often there are two ways that prophecies are fulfilled. There's often a near fulfillment, and there's what we might call a far fulfillment. That is, there's a near fulfillment, that is, when the prophet makes certain predictions and prophesies, very often there is a fulfillment of that prophecy in that prophet's time, in his immediate circumstances so that he can see it happen. That's one way the prophecies are fulfilled. But then there are often far fulfillments of these prophecies. That is, things that happen in the distant future that the prophet might have very little understanding of, quite frankly, even as he's giving his prophecy. And, and that's what we see here. The near fulfillment of this prophecy is this. Verse 14, you can see it very clearly, the near fulfillment is this. God says, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. So the promise is, my people, I'm going to get you back to the promised land. I'm going to get you back to Jerusalem. I, I'm going to do that for you. The people are discouraged. They're hopeless in Babylon, and God says, I'm going to get you back to the land. And in fact, that did happen Persia defeated Babylon. King Cyrus came along in the year 539. He sent the Jews back to Jerusalem. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah? That's what those books are about, the Jews coming back to Jerusalem. God fulfilled that promise in Ezekiel's time or close to his time. But there's a far fulfillment here also, that there's something more going on. There's something more that God has in mind, and we see a hint of this in verses 12 and 13. Prophesy to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will, what? Open your graves 
and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves, he says it again, and raise you from your graves. You know, we see a lot in the New Testament about the resurrection. We don't see a whole lot in the Old Testament about resurrection, but it's there. It's right here. The resurrection promised in the Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha, they raised some people from the dead. I think there was a, a notion in the average Jewish mind about resurrection. Martha said that to Jesus in John 11. Yeah, I know that there's a resurrection, but I'm not sure that any of them really had in mind exactly what the New Testament tells us was going to happen, which is that the Savior, the Son of God would come, the person of Jesus Christ, and he would come into this world and live a perfect life and go to the cross and lay down his life and shed his blood and be resurrected from the dead and come out of that tomb in his glorious resurrected body. And then he would promise that all who then look to him in faith would also be able to look forward to that reality, that their bodies would come out of the grave one day, that they would be raised up. And this is exactly what Jesus says here in John chapter 6, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and I will raise Him up at the last day. That's the gospel promise to you this morning that if you look to the Son, God will raise you up on the last day. Bring your body out of that grave with a glorious perfected body to live for all Eternity. The promise, the near fulfillment of this promise is a good thing. God putting Israel back in Israel, it's good, but God had something so much better in mind, something far superior to what the average Jew expected, probably superior to even what Ezekiel realized. The defeat of Satan, victory over death, the Holy Spirit changing hearts, forgiveness of sins, a renewed cosmos, all through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Better than you can imagine, friends. I don't know what your struggle is today. You're, you're here today, and maybe you're carrying some heavy burdens, and, and you're, you're feeling without hope. You, you feel like maybe you have, you have ruined your life beyond repair. You, you come here, and, and you feel like you, you've sinned one too many times. You, you have exceeded God's quota of grace and mercy. You're, you're convinced that he has given up on you. You feel abandoned. You feel exiled. You feel cut off. God has given this large and startling vision to get your attention and to remind you, people of God, that his promises are still true. And they're true for you. And he has not forgotten you. He will do exceedingly and abundantly more than all you ask or think. It might not be exactly what you think. It might be different than what you expect, but it will be better than what you expect, just to the degree that resurrection from the dead is better than a return to the nation of Israel for God's people. Look to Jesus, friends. Repent, turn from your sins, put your hope in him. He can take the dry bones of your life, no matter what ruin exists there. He can take those dry bones, and he can make them live. That's the good news. 
He can make them live. So shake off your guilty fears and know that he is Lord. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your prophets. We thank you for your spirit who gives us new hearts, hearts of flesh. Oh, Lord, use your spirit now to increase our love for you and our commitment to follow you and trust you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.